Well, thank you, brothers. I, uh, praise the Lord. <clears throat> Let's continue our study in Ephesians, shall we? And uh, chapter 4, we'll start in verse uh, 17, I think that's where Sean was preaching from, and just to give the context for the rest of the chapter. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk, not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness, and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak ye, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for the privilege of having, holding, reading the Holy Scriptures. Breathe on us, Lord, that as we read and meditate, we might live in thy sight. Help us to get at the truth of it, to receive it, Lord, into our hearts, to keep it and to bring forth fruit with patience. Father, we pray. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. Amen. Now, I uh, believe uh, Sean took us up to the end of uh, verse 24, something like that. Don't remember precisely. Uh, and he touched on, on that, and I want to pick up on that point about putting off and putting on, uh, look at the theology of it, the foundation of it, and Lord willing, next week we can look at the, the practical application of it, and I suppose if all goes like that, Lord willing, Sean will start us in chapter 5 um, in a couple of weeks. This is a, a common, a common um, theme in amongst uh, preachers and teaching on practical holiness and sanctification, this whole um, idea of put on or put off. And it 
It seems to me that it's easy for us to misunderstand what is being said. Uh, I'm not alluding to Sean particularly, not, not at all really. Um, just the wider exposure in Christendom. And I can only conclude that people teach and preach based on their experience. This is a common failing, is that um, because of the day in which we live, where unbelief is rampant, where faith is small, people are commonly saved in a very meager way in terms of experience and don't go on with the Lord as they should. And so their experience of this grand salvation that God has made is diminished. And then rather than face that fact, the teachings of scriptures are now um, brought in to fit their experience. And this is one of the reasons why the, um, what Paul describes in Romans 7 is thought by many to be what Paul currently lived. And it clearly is not. It, Paul is describing um, a man under the law in the flesh, um, not filled with the Spirit of God in Romans 7. But when someone's experiencing that, um, professing Christ, then they think that was what Paul was talking about, many things like that. So I, I hope that in looking at it um, objectively, what the scriptures are saying, that we can, uh, we can get at the truth of it. Additionally, if we understand the scriptures properly, we will be more successful in the application of them. It's straightforward. So, I want to make a controversial statement, and it's this, uh, that this passage, well, it might not be controversial to some, but it is to others, that this passage is not telling us to put off the old man. All right? You are not taught in Scripture to put off the old man. Now everyone's wide awake, right? Let's go to a parallel passage in uh, Colossians. Paul writing these two epistles at the same time. Uh, Colossians chapter 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, pay attention here, brethren, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. The apostle here writes in less ambiguous language, less contestable language, the identical thought to
to what he writes to us in Ephesians. He's saying that if you have been born again, you have already put off the old man. <clears throat> and some people think, then why am I experiencing this? Well, we'll get to that, uh, Lord willing. But it's a very important thing to understand. We need to get it right. Um, <clears throat> in Galatians chapter 5 and verse um, 24, Paul said, They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. This is a past tense. <clears throat> in, uh, in Romans chapter 6, he writes similarly. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are killing ourselves to sin live any longer therein? That's how some people think. How shall we that are dead, past tense, already a, a, a present continuous, dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, and so on. Um, <clears throat> verse 11, or verse, um, uh, verse 8, in the interest of time. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And again in Galatians, Paul writes um, <clears throat> a famous passage, I am crucified with Christ. Now, brethren, this is so important uh, to understand. We'll go back to our passage in Colossians, and then let's, let's unpack it a little bit. In Colossians chapter 3, he tells them, Mortify, therefore, your members. It's important, your body. And he lists a whole lot of things that probably everyone here was uh, saved from instantly. Uh, upon regeneration. The heathen, however, were steeped in immorality at the time of the New Testament. It's unspeakable. I don't want to describe to you the things that were common in the days of Rome. Um, I think it's in Ephesus where, uh, you know, that whole uproar was raised by Demetrius. Hmm. It was Demetrius, the, the silversmith, the head of the craftsman's guild there. I think it was Demetrius. He raised this whole uproar, you know, we're going to be put out of business if Paul keeps going. And uh, great is Diane of the Ephesians. I believe there was also the temple of Aphrodite. And unspeakable lewdness was a norm for every married woman in those days. And they were so steeped in the, the uncleanness that it is conceivable, and Paul writes about to the Corinthians, that this immorality persisted in those that had believed on the Lord Jesus and had been saved, perhaps sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so he addresses them in practical terms. 
Stop doing these things. Kill them, you know, members, so to speak. It's metaphoric language. Ah. But the basis of those things is on this fact. That by being baptized into Jesus Christ, you have already put off the old man. And I remember a time, now what some people do is they try and re-engineer all these things and to make it fit their experience. But I remember a time, I was a very young man, I was still in my teens. And in reading the New Testament, and though I believed I had been forgiven for sins that I had committed, and though I was trying my best to live as a faithful Christian, in reading the New Testament, it became very clear to me that I did not have this life of the Holy Spirit of which I read. And it didn't matter what well-meaning pastors or elders said to me, I knew that I had not received the Spirit of God. It didn't matter the theology, I knew that. Yes, I believed I had been forgiven my sins through the death of Christ. But knowing that this was not real in my life, I set my heart to ask of God until it was real in my life. And he did. He gave me his Holy Spirit, transformed my inward man, so that the laws and teachings of Christ were natural to me, instead of me trying to do the impossible. And I do believe that is a much better way to go, to, to bring our lives under the Word of God and have our experience brought into conformity with the Scriptures than trying to bring the Scriptures into conformity with a... a a failed experience. Be that as it may, the apostle is pointing out to these that have believed in the Lord Jesus that because Christ has crucified the old man, walk in that. You haven't got to crucify the old man. Jesus did that for you. Believe on him with all your heart and get about living it. That's the point he's saying. And he brings some things to mind. Um, it is, uh, he didn't feel it was sufficient to just assume that the Holy Spirit would automatically cause everybody to understand. He believed, as is evidenced by his writings, that our minds needed some help. We needed something spelled out to us so that we would consciously be going in a direction where the Holy Spirit's going. And so he mentions some specifics here. In the Colossian letter, he puts them first, and then he points out, you have put off the old man with his deeds, and you have put on the new man. Therefore, destroy all of those things. Well, in the Ephesian letter, where we are in chapter 4, he does the order in the reverse. Right? Uh, <clears throat> Verse 22, right? If you have heard him, if you have been taught by Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, right? So that's past tense, which is corrupt according to deceitful lusts. Uh, We'll jump over 23 for now. I'll come back to it later. And that ye put on, again, that's past tense, the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, Speak every man truth with his neighbor. Right? And he goes on. Anger and stealing and 
corrupt communication and so on. He says, now get these things out of your life because you've put off the old man. These things belong to the old man, so don't have them in your life. That's the basis. So the basis for going on in the Christian life is what Christ has already accomplished. And it may help us to stop praying. And when I say that, I'm not here, and it shouldn't matter to you if I am, because you're judged by God, not by me. But I'm not here scrutinizing everybody's prayers to straighten them out. I don't at all. I'm just uh, edified. But we shouldn't so much pray, Lord, will you give me this grace? Lord, will you do But Lord, I'm coming in. You've done it and I'm taking it. <laughs> That's how we should approach the matter. Let's, um, let's set the stage for, uh, or set our minds for some um, thinking, ways of thinking as we go into the Old Testament, shall we? Let's look in Galatians. Where are we? Chapter 4. There it is. Chapter 4. Now Paul is reproving the Galatians for going back to the law. And it's not primarily the law. It's this whole issue of having begun in the spirit. You're now trying to be perfected by the flesh. You are saved by the grace and power of God. And now you're trying to go on by your own human effort. That's the problem. That's the basis by which the law functions. And so he says uh, this in Galatians chapter 4, 21. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. Now that's a historical fact, right? Amen. We all believe that. He had Ishmael um, by Hagar. That was a bondwoman. And he had Isaac by Sarah, his wife, free. It's a historical fact. The scriptures record them. There's a narrative about them. They're all factual. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. But he of the free woman was by promise. So Hagar, uh, Sarah cooked up this plan. Says, here, you do this thing with Hagar. It was entirely through natural life, which God had created. But it was a human idea, and it was normal functioning human uh, mechanisms, and that's how Ishmael was born, according to the flesh. But Isaac was born when both Abraham and Sarah's bodies were no longer um, functioning sufficient to produce a child. And, uh, but God promised, they believed, and so a miracle was done. This is his point. These things are factual. He who was born of the he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. So these things happened. The scriptures record them, and they happened literally as they're told. Are we all with that on the same page? And concerning those facts in the narrative, Paul says, which things are an allegory? Those facts are an allegory. How many of us are familiar with the book, The Pilgrim's Progress? It's an allegory. It writes a story, and a fantasy, if you will, but it's telling spiritual truths. It's a kind of thing. Parables are similar. 
Which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants. The one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. It goes on. And <laughs> rejoice, thou barren, which bearest not. Right? Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. He's taking these spiritual realities from a historical narrative. He's saying this historical narrative is an allegory of a spiritual reality. Now this is ABC's, brethren. I know you all know this, but we're going over it to demonstrate something. In writing to the Hebrews, he talks about the tabernacle, which is a shadow and figure of the things in the heavens. Right? So there was a candlestick, there was showbread, there was incense, there was a veil, the holy of holies. And all of those things are, though they were physical realities that persisted in the days of Moses, later Solomon built a temple. They were shadows and types and figures of spiritual realities in the heaven. All right? Okay. So having, having reviewed that, which we already know, let's look in Ephesians and then we're going to go back into the Old Testament. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 3. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. And to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now that's language here that is similar to this language. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 13. So Lot's servants and Abram's servants have been at strife, and Abraham offers Lot in all meekness, to choose what he wants, and Lot chooses and goes. And verse 14, the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art northward and southward, and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth. So that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Now Paul wrote to the Galatians that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And I want to assert to you from the Holy Scriptures, brethren, that the land that God gave, is really a spiritual land. It's not really concerned with the boundaries in uh, the Middle East. Those though those things were literally possessed during the times of David and Solomon. God having put away those things, as he did with the temple. Look at the language in Ephesians. That Christ 
may dwell in your hearts by faith. That ye may be able to comprehend, to encircle, to take hold of with all the saints the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ. This is your inheritance. Is the complete fullness of the love of Christ. This is what Christianity is and is all about. That that uh, they might all be one, fathers, thou art in me and I in thee, that they may be one in us. And to know the love of Christ, Paul writes, which passes knowledge. To be brought into fellowship with God, and God is love. Christianity is about the love of God. There are other aspects and other elements, holiness, practical righteousness, of course. But the whole thing spills out of this fountain of love. And it seems to me that in our age, as in ages past, the bulk of Christians have missed the plot entirely. We, we, we need to be doing this and we need to be about that and it's got to be this way. and It's all got to be done in love, of course, but it's this and that. And we've got it upside down. I was talking with someone recently and he was sharing uh, about problems in their church and the uh, ministers at odds and, 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 and it all comes down to this, brethren. You might be able to find an exception, but really church problems all boil down to a failure to obey Jesus' new commandment to love one another as I have loved you. All strifes, all issues in the church because people are not doing that. It's the truth. It's not an extra. It's not the thing we, you know, we got to make sure we're doing everything with love and where you're loving. And all that. It is the thing. The end of the commandment, Paul wrote, is charity out of a pure heart. The end, the aim, the, the purpose. The purpose of the gospel is to create in the hearts of God's people perfect love. That's what God is doing. That is the thing he's doing. Is to make people who are as loving as he is. And everything else is gravy. Now I like gravy. I hope you do. It does add to the, the meal. It makes it lovely. And all of these other things. But let's understand. Love is not the gravy. Love is the thing. That you and I. We can all dwell together. I don't know brother and sister. If you can see what I see. People that are filled with the love of Christ, one for another. It doesn't matter their background, doesn't matter how tall or short, how fat or thin, how ugly or attractive, how weird or wonderful, what their culture is, all filled with the love of Christ and delighting in one another. That's the thing God is doing. Hearts swell with love. Anticipation. This is... You think married people, according people, just one of my daughters just got married. You think they were looking forward to coming up to their wedding day. Ooh, it's going to be so great having a joint bank account. Or, wow, we're going to be living thus and such. What do you think is really top of mind? It's love. And being able to be together and not have to restrain the expression of love. Right? Some expressions of love must be restrained until circumstances are appropriate. That's what they're looking forward to. 
love. And that's what God's looking forward to. That's what heaven is going to be all about. There will be no restraint to love and the expression of it. There will be no veil, no barrier, no hindrance, no obstacle. Pure, holy love. And that's what he's doing now in the earth, in his people. And too many of the Lord's lovely, redeemed people are distracted from that. But that's what he's doing. He's not making a, a, a head-covering people. Why do I pick on that? Don't you believe in that? Of course. I mean, just, it's obvious. He's not making a conservative living people. Now, I'm not... I'm, I'm point, picking on things that I believe are, are valid and important and necessary. But they're not the main thing. They are accessories to the thing God is doing. God is working in the heart and making a pure, holy, loving people that love him and love one another and love the lost and want to see them partake of his goodness. Good will toward all men. People that are not hurt and offended and resentful and critical and murmuring and whatever filthiness that affects and inflicts and infects the human heart. Just filled with love. And refined from the big picture down to the minutiae. Right down to the nitty gritty stuff that irks and bugs you about someone else. And the Lord wants to just clear that away. And you can look well past it and just appreciate the grace of God and the goodness and what the Lord's making them. You're not distracted by those things that rub you the wrong way about somebody. But just delight in them. This is growing up. And you can do that for everybody. Because it's Christ in you. And that's how he is. He delights in all of his people. He looked at that rich young ruler. And he loved him. He didn't have any snide thing to say to him. He knew what this man was. He knew this man was deluded. He knew this man loved money. He knew this man was trying to make it on his own. And wanted to be justified in being rich and not really sacrificing to give the poor, but he still wanted to go to heaven. He had a divided heart. He knew all of that. He could see right through him. He looked at him, and this was what the emotions were in Jesus. He loved him. And it would have been so far from Jesus to have offered some snide or some careless thing. He didn't expose the man to everybody else. He gave him a code to just expose him to himself. So many people would have said, How many poor people did you pass on the way to me? Expose his hypocrisy before everyone and shame the man openly. The Lord wasn't interested in that. If you want to be perfect, go and do this. He loved. Look at Zacchaeus. Turncoat, traitor, sellout, covetous, abusive, extortioner. Looks at him just with goodwill. Zacchaeus, I want to come have lunch with you today. He had disciples who should have known better. He's just poured out his heart to them. And it just goes right past them. And now they're, which one of us is going to be greatest in the kingdom? Trampling over his most sensitive feelings. And instead of upbraiding them for that, unbelief. Now that's a different story. He'll upbraid them over that. 
But when they are trampling on his own feelings and sensitively, it's like he put them on his knee and rubbed their back and says, now boys, that's not the way. It's humility, all right? See this little child? This is the way. No snark, no edge, no, you know, just grace. This is the love of Christ and this is the life that we've been baptized into and this is what he's wanting to bring up to the the natural and spontaneous and automatic reaction of our souls. Do you want to grow up into that? I do. I'm coming, Lord. We were exhorted again this morning to chase it like Asahel chasing Abner. What was the result? Asahel died. Amen. (laughs) It might be not I, but Christ. So let me catch love and die. That's what needs to happen to the self in real time. This land that we are to possess. Now, let us, let us take some instruction. All right, we know that the Israelites went down into, into Egypt, and we know the deliverance, and we know that they crammed an eight-day or 11-day journey into 40 years. Right? What could have been done in a week or two, they stretched out over the course of their whole life. And sadly, most of us as Christians do the same thing. I uh, I knew an old man of God. He said to a friend of mine, there's not many men, Walt. Everywhere I go, it's just babies. My wife gave me a book by a man named William Still. who was a pastor in, I was going to say Aberdeen, but I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure I'm wrong. I think I'm wrong anyway on that. And he said a similar thing. The Christian church is a big nursery and it's a shame. Well, brethren, there's grace with us. Let's grow up, shall we? Let's grow up into him in all things. Joshua chapter 1. Verse 1. Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give them, even unto the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given you, as I said unto Moses. And that's the same land that he gave to Abraham, remember? Walk up and down it, the length and the breadth of it. See it. Let's stay in the new covenant. Now that land is the length and breadth of the love of Christ. This is, your, this is the love of Christ in you for every soul you meet. The irritating person in your social circle. That obnoxious, smelly, deformed person that you meet out in the world. That arrogant person that looks down on you for being a silly religious dupe. Whoever you meet, the land that you and I get to possess is the love of Christ for that soul. And when all those people are together in that one assembly, it is a glorious um, collection of love. What a glow. But in, in our own private patch, you and I get to be filled with love for every member of our household, for every acquaintance of ours, for our neighbors. 
for our persecutors. For those that speak evil of us and do evil to us, we get to be filled with the love of Christ towards them. That's given to us by God. Mm. And it's for you and I to take it. Now let's look at this theme, right? We're reading now through an allegory, the wars of Canaan under the leadership of Jesus, right? Joshua is the English uh, translation of Yehoshua or something. So that's going from the Hebrew into English. Now Jesus is going, I'm not even going to try the Greek, John, I'll spare your ears, um, from the Greek to the English. But Jesus is going, right, the, the Greek from which we get Jesus is gotten from the Hebrew. And Jesus and Joshua are the same name. And it's not by accident that Joshua has the same name as the Savior. That Moses, the lawgiver, couldn't bring the people into the land. He could only bring them so they could see into it. But that Jesus, the Savior, brought them in. And so it is in the New Covenant. The law could only bring us so we could get a vision, a description of what the life of a Christian would look like. But Jesus brings us into the reality of it in our hearts and in our lives. Now, we know the battles of Jericho and, and so on. And, uh, and the blip at Ai and they recovered from that and, and off they go. And they, they are there possessing the land. <clears throat> and we get to this in chapter 15 of Joshua. We'll skate by in the interest of time. This then was the lot of the tribe of the children of Judah by their families. And he gives a border even to the border of Edom, the wilderness of Zin, and the south border was from the Salt Sea and Bay, and etc., etc. This was their border. Right? They're all getting their patches of land. And at the end of the chapter, verse 63, As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem unto this day. Now that phrase, unto this day, is not unto our day now, but unto the, the, this is the time the prophet was writing. This was before the time of David this book was written. So it's a situation of some standing. Do we get the picture here? These children of Judah, they'd come into the land as the whole nation had. Been baptized unto Jesus Christ as it were. Baptized unto Joshua. They, they, they dipped their, their feet into the Jordan and the waters parted before them and they crossed over into the land of Canaan. In the promised land. That's the Christian life. Heaven's not the promised land. There's no giants in heaven. There's no wars in heaven when we're there. They're baptized into, into, uh, through Canaan into the promised land. And they have had victories. Jericho, that was an easy win. Ai, they got defeated, they repented, and that was an easy win. And they have the land divided up, and off they go. But there, for the children of Judah, was an area in their possession that they couldn't overcome. That's what the word it says. They couldn't. Well, let's. They could not drive them out. That seems to legitimize legitimize it, doesn't it? They couldn't. How can you blame them for something they couldn't do? Well, 
let's keep, keep that in mind and let's think. Uh, let's reason together with the Lord. Why couldn't they? That's the question. It says they couldn't. It doesn't say they wouldn't. It says they couldn't. Chapter 16. Verse 9. And the separate cities for the children of Ephraim were among the inheritance of the children of Manasseh. All the cities were their villages. And they drave not out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer. But the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites unto this day. And serve under tribute. Now here it doesn't say they couldn't. It just says they didn't. The question we have to ask ourselves is why? And brethren... The reasons are the same for the Christians today. You had, let's look at it, let's underline it and circle it and you know how I am. And I'm comforted by the Apostle John who repeated himself a lot. These people had been given a promise by God. And they had experienced miraculous victory by God. And they were living in the good of the land. And yet... They had areas within that land inheritance that they were not in possession of and could not or did not overcome. It didn't make them not the covenant people of God. It didn't make them not in the land. It didn't make them not blessed of God. It did not make them, um, it didn't invalidate them as heirs of God. In Christian terms, we could say you'd have someone, he's had miracles. I don't know, God delivered him from drunkenness or, or a violent temper, whatever it was, and set his life right, fixed his marriage and so on. But he's got something in his life where he is continually failing or has not set right. It doesn't make him not born again. It doesn't make her not saved. It doesn't make them not a Christian. But it means they're not possessing the land that God has given to them in all its fullness. And we could ask ourselves, is that really God's will for them? The answer would be, no, it's not. But they would say, as the children of Judah would, but I can't overcome it. All right, well, let's look at why. And some, they just didn't. Didn't even say they couldn't. But the reasons are similar. Chapter 18. Before we go to chapter 18, let's go to chapter 17. Let's, let's deal with it. We go back to the could not. Chapter 12. Yet the children, chapter 17, verse 12. Yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities. But the Canaanites would dwell in that land. So the Canaanites, they're not budging. The children of Manasseh could not drive them out. Yet it came to pass when the children of Israel were waxen strong. That they put the Canaanites to tribute, but did not utterly drive them out. And the children of Joseph, that's Ephraim and Manasseh. Children of Joseph spake unto Joshua, saying, Why hast thou given me but one lot and one portion to inherit? Seeing I am a great people, for as much as the Lord has blessed me hitherto. And Joshua answered them, If thou be a great people, then get thee up to the wood country, and cut down for thyself there in the land of the Perizzites. And of the giants, if Mount Ephraim be too narrow for thee. And the children of Joseph said, The hill is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites that dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron. Both they who are of Bethshean and her towns, and they who are of the valley of Jezreel. 
And Joshua spake unto the house of Joseph, even to Ephraim and to Manasseh, saying, Thou art a great people and hast great power. We were hearing that earlier. Thou shalt not have one lot only, but the mountain shall be thine, for it is a wood, and thou shalt cut it down, and the outgoings of it shall be thine, for thou shalt drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots, and though they be strong. (laughs) They came to Joshua and said, it's hard, we can't. And Joshua said, you will do it. And I say to you, friend, That's what the Lord Jesus will say to you if you go whining about some defeat in your life. I can't, Lord. Go and do it. I died to end the old man. Now you get up. Joshua, do you remember the battle of Ai? For the sake of time, we won't turn there. He fell on his face. Lord, you know, we defeat. Why liest thou on thy face? Get up. Deal with it. Some people think I'm hard as a dad. Well, I get it from the Lord. And his children lie down and bawl. He didn't say, oh, there, there, what's the matter? You know, I know I'm stepping on toes. Forgive me. Can't help it. My feet are about six sizes too big. Get up. What are you doing lying down and crying? Get up. Deal with it. Hmm. And perhaps if we didn't mollycoddle ourselves so much, we might get further ahead. Thou shalt drive them out. Though they have chariots of iron, though they be seen. But I want to go back to the days of Jericho where all we did was walk around singing glory, hallelujah, and it all happened by itself. There's none of that. You're on your own. You got swords. You got the promise of God. Now you on your foot with your swords and your hoes and whatever else, go and beat up these guys with horses and chariots that are ten times stronger than you. Go and do it. Because God is with you. The same God that parted the Red Sea, that parted Jordan, that took the walls of Ai down. Now he's going to give you the victory through your feeble efforts as you go up against something that's tougher than you. But you've got to go with a resolute will that Jesus is Lord. That the word of God is true. That God cannot lie. That this is mine. You've got to have a spirit like Caleb. Give me this Not like these wine. And look at Joshua. (laughs) Chapter 18. The whole congregations assembled there. Verse 1. The land was subdued before them. Seven tribes had not yet received their inheritance. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel. And he would say this to us if he were here this morning. How long are ye slack to go to possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers hath given you? How long are you slack? Hmm? How long are you and I going to be slack to lay hold on all the fullness of the love of Christ? Hmm? Does this seem a little hard? No wonder they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. I just want to be stroked, right? Told I'm doing pretty good. I had a brother tell me that decades ago. Relax. (laughs) Go easy on yourself. 
There's neither male nor female in Christ. This is not the war, the spiritual warfare is not for men only. The conquest of Canaan is for every man, woman, and child to take hold of Christ. Because it's done by, by the Lord. Two of you shall chase 10,000. One of you shall chase 1,000. That's not because, you know, some big burly guy. It's because the Lord is the, is the man of war that fights the battles. Brother and sister, look at, um, look at the, the letter to the Hebrews. You know, I believe with those that uh, are responsible for getting our Bibles to us that Paul wrote it. The epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews, I think it says right there. I know it's disputed. Hebrews chapter 4. Let us therefore, oh, let's go in chapter 3. Verse 17, with whom was he grieved 40 years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter, his re- enter into his rest? But to them that believe not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. This is why they couldn't drive out the Canaanites. Because of unbelief. They believed God for uh, Jericho. At least they obeyed. I don't know if they thought, man, this seems kind of silly, but here we go. Follow the leader. Round and round we go. Blow with the ram's horn. Shout. Oh, look, it worked. Go get him. I don't know what their thoughts were, but they obeyed. They did what they were commanded, and that was counted by faith. By faith, the walls of Jericho came down. They could not drive them out because of unbelief. And it's the same for the Christian. The Christian that can't get victory over something, it's because of unbelief. That might seem hard, but that's what Joshua said. Now, when we're talking with one another, we're going to be tender. We're going to take each other by the hand and lift one another up. We're not going to wag the bony finger. Oh, you know. If we see someone down in a spirit of meekness, we're going to help considering ourselves, right? But surely we can, when it's that more distant and we're just expounding the word together, surely we can challenge ourselves with the fact that the thing that keeps people out of blessing is unbelief. That's why. Surely we can exhort and, and provoke one another to love and to good work. Surely we can reprove and rebuke unbelief in a general sense and then each of us can take it personally and, and say, Lord, I'm not having any unbelief in my soul. And I'm not speaking to an individual generally. I'm speaking to us as a people and to humanity. It's unbelief. Christ said, reckon ye yourselves to be dead in actual fact unto sin. Right here in Hebrews, the apostle says this. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 4. He spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise. And God did rest the seventh day from all his works. Verse 9. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest. He also hath ceased from his own works. As God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest. 
lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. The apostle is being clever with words on purpose. Labor to enter into rest, what's that? He's wanting to make us think. But let us consider here, brethren, he that hath entered into rest has ceased from his own works. Now the most basic application of that is we are not trusting in our own merits at all for acceptance with God. We have ceased from that. We're trusting fully in the works of Christ and the finished work of Christ. That's step one. But cease from your own works. What are your works? You know, mine are sin. And entering into that rest, you cease from it. You cease from your temper. You cease from your critical way of looking at people. You cease from being resentful. You cease from murmuring. You cease from hate. You cease from pride. You cease from lust, from covetousness. You cease from all sinful works. And you enter into rest. By faith in Christ who said it is finished. And he crucified the old man with its affections and lusts. And on the day of Pentecost he poured out the Holy Ghost bringing the new man. And the new man is defined by the love of Jesus. That's who dwells in the believer. And it's for you and I to take hold of this. By faith. If there's, a, if there's an area of defeat in the life of a believer, surely it's either a failure to love God or a failure to love man. Is there anything that's outside of those two categories? Impatience. Anger. Railing. By the way, do we understand railing doesn't mean shouting? It just means speaking derogatorily about somebody. You can rail in a very subdued, meek tone of voice. It's just saying something bad about somebody. You look it up. Do a Bible study on it. You'll be horrified to realize how rampant it is in the Christian church. But all of these things are a failure to love man. Think of private sins. That don't affect anybody. These are a failure to love God. Somebody watching uncleanness. Is not loving God. They're not keeping themselves holy. Even more mundane than that. Wasting time. I'm not loving God. If I'm wasting time. I'm loving myself. Or I'm yielding to the flesh. Everything that is wrong in a believer's life. And anybody's life is a failure of love. Failure to love God, a failure to love man. And the rest that we are brought into is a rest of perfect love. Hallelujah. Are you excited? The whole land, not just the little patch, not just deliverance from the shouting temper, the, the drugs or the, the alcohol or the pornography or whatever the big sins are that people think, woohoo, now I'm good. But the whole land, the length and breadth and depth and height of the love of Christ. That this Jesus, God manifest in the flesh who loved and loved and loved. Who was tender and patient with his closest friends when they were insensitive to his most tender feelings. 
watch ye and pray one hour. And he comes back and they're sleeping. Notice his concern is for them. What? Could ye not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest ye enter into temptation. Lest ye enter. He's concerned for them. Do you men know what I'm going through and you just let me? There's none of that in the Lord. What reproof. He's concerned for them in his most tortured hour before the cross. When his friends let him down, he's concerned for them. This is the love of Christ. This is a vast land. This is ours by birthright. Let's go after it. Let's possess it in all its fullness. When you, our first introduction, John's first introduction to the Lord Jesus is, uh, was it Nathanael insulting him? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And the Lord Jesus says, wow, I really like you. You are so honest. What a harsh response to an insult. See past it and see the good in the person insulting you. This is the land, brethren. It's the love of Christ. It's that fountain, and it spills over into, into holiness, into good works, into, you know, you name all of the conservative values that we might have or don't have, whatever. It's, it's all gushing out of this fountain of love to God and goodwill toward man. Everything that we do and everything we don't do is an outflow of love to God and man. It's a vast land. Let us not be slack to go and possess it. Let us not fail in unbelief. Let us not be slothful. Let us be followers of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I haven't studied his life. I'll just take it on face value. That famous martyr, you know, he's on the cover of Martyr's mirror, is it Dirk Wilhelm's? Right? This man's chasing him, right? They're all chasing him and he escapes and the guy, one of the guys closest to him goes through the ice and he turns back to save this man. I can only take it at face value. It was the love of Christ. It wasn't as dutiful. Well, I'm an Anabaptist, so I got to do this. But a genuine concern. I don't want this man to perish. Saves him. And they killed him in the end. He gave his life. To save his persecutor. Because he loved him. Not because he's an Anabaptist or something. It's Jesus. Taking it at face value. And I have no reason to think I shouldn't. It's it's the kingdom of love. There's a hymn. The king of love my shepherd is. His goodness goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I am his. Hallelujah. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That ye being rooted and grounded in love. May be able to comprehend with all saints. What is the breadth and length and depth and height. And to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. That ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Look at the minutiae of my life. My daily interactions with wife and children. I think oh Lord. Every step. I want to walk in love. Patience. You have a big household. You have lots of opportunities for patience. 
Not a, not a f- controlled patience, but a, a benevolent patience of the Lord Jesus. Lord, dwell in me. Yeah. <laughs> mm. I mean, it can be expressed with humor. I'm, I'm so uh, thankful my children enjoy my humor. But it's got to be, you know, there's a difference between a loving tease and a sarcastic bite. Eh? It can be the same words in the same circumstance, but it's all about what's coming out of the heart. Isn't it? It's not that you can't, you know, be your way in your own home, your personalities your fl- and all that. But everything should be done with the love of Christ. Grow up into him in all things. And so here we are. <laughs> in... Uh, Verses 22 and 24. Put off. You have put off the old man. You have put on the new man. We need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Not just the specific details. That comes off. But the whole spirit is the love of Christ. That God has done it. Right? This is the starting point. This is the platform on which we'll build. And from there we will look at, Lord willing, next week, the specifics that Paul addresses. All the, the specific sins, residual, habitual, whatever they are, they can be destroyed quite matter-of-factly from the soul that has been baptized into Jesus Christ and knows it. And knows that Christ has crucified the old man. Christ has crucified the flesh. That before long we shall put on glorified bodies. That this current body in which we have wherein the lusts of the flesh dwell has been mightily conquered already. And therefore we can mortify its misdeeds. And bring its lawful deeds into subjection. A misdeed would be a sin. A lawful deed would be eating. Eating to excess would be a sin. Can bring the whole thing. Why? Through the victory that Christ hath wrought. And we approach it with this attitude. Not of, I can't, Lord, help me. But, Lord, you've done it. (laughs) I'm coming in. All mine. Through your death and resurrection. We're going to remember his death. He died that we might be his. Hallelujah. We're going to remember his death. He died... That we might be his and that we might be filled with him. That he might fill us, dwell among us. He, we all desire a greater manifestation of the Spirit of God in our midst. But, but there's this element that is part of that as well. Is that living Jesus Christ within. Manifesting himself through your personality and yours and yours. Through what's the common thing. It's this love of Christ. Your humor, your sobriety. It's Christ. How is it thou will manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? By dwelling in us. And when all of these assemble, filled with the love of Christ and in union with God in love, what won't he do to manifest and meet the needs let's remember him brethren um, the th- you, you don't put off the old man the old man has been put off and because he has you're going to put off specific things that need putting off because he has put on the new man in you you can put on anything that pertains to the new man 
because you've already got it in you and accessible. And if we find any lack, let us do what the Lord Jesus says and go to our Father in prayer. If my child came needing food or drink, I would give it. And of course, he will minister the grace and the faith to obtain through the Holy Ghost everything that we need in Christ to walk in him. Amen. Sean, would you stand and pray for the...